welcome to this special EG webinar brought to you in partnership with the Environment Bank. Uh, I'm EG editor Sam McLaren. I'll very shortly be introducing you to my stellar lineup of guests. But first, a quick overview of what you can expect in today's session. Uh, so today, with the help of my four excellent experts, we're going to understand more about how to deliver biodiversity net gain and enhance project viability. We'll look at the requirements of, for biodiversity net gain under the Environment Act, the challenges, the opportunities and the solutions of and to delivering biodiversity net gain. And all of those must know points that sometimes get lost in that legislation too. We've got 40 minutes to cover all that, so let's get to it and meet our experts. So joining me today to help uh, unpack this conversation, we have Julia Baker, who's Head of Nature Services at Mott MacDonald, Alexis Perry, Commercial Director at Environment Bank, Nina Pinkham, Barrister at Number 5 Barristers Chambers, and Emma Tooby, Ecology Director at Environment Bank. So, well, let's start with uh, two of the big ones, just to set the set the scene. Um, and Julie, I'm going to come to you first and just ask, when we say biodiversity net gain, exactly what do we mean by that? And then Nina, I want to throw to you to um, perhaps uh, add to that um, and tell us how that translates for developers and investors um, in the Environment Act. So Julia, over to you first. Give us the definition. Yes, well, at a very, very simple level, in a way, it's development that leaves biodiversity in a measurably better state than before we found it. So development comes along, it might be obviously housing, or in my world, it might be transport or energy, whatever that development is, biodiversity is better off because that development has happened. And that is a change, you know, that is a massive change from what we've done before, but in terms of a lot of mitigation and compensation, now development is the driving force for good. Development's going to underpin a really healthy natural environment. And we need that. You know, we need that for a thriving economy and society. So, but what does that mean in practice? Well, in England, we have um, a biodiversity metric published by uh, Natural England, our government. And that enables us to measure the change in biodiversity. So from before to after a development. What that metric does is essentially measure changes in habitats. So you have a certain amount and type of habitats before your development. Then you build your housing development. And after development, you'll have a certain amount and type of habitats. So that's what gets measured in terms of the measurable change. We need a, a minimum of a 10% increase after that development to hit that net gain. So when you're on a construction site, it's all about your habitats. It's all about your habitats. So when you come to a construction site, what habitats do you have on your site to start with? What are the really valuable ones and can you retain them and can you enhance them? The more habitat you clear, the more you go into deficit. Then you've got to get back up and then you've got to get to net gain. So it's just business sense to think about your habitats and really think about, OK, well, what can we retain? What are the valuable ones? And to enhance it, you know, you get your net gain much, much quicker. But that leads into quite an interesting discussion because habitats need space. So really, really early on, think about the habitats that you have on site and think about space. For net gain, we need more habitats than we had to start with. or We need existing. We need to make those existing habitats better. And where's that going to go? Is that going to be on site or maybe off site? Where is that space for net gain? Fantastic. And that's when we'll it comes to construction. Yeah. Sorry, Julie, we'll definitely get into that space um, conversation, I'm sure. But I think that's a really 
useful pointer for for um, the audience today that when we say biodiversity net gain, we're really talking about habitats, just making it nice and nice and simple. Not that I would, of course, say that our audience is simple, but sometimes it helps. Uh, <laughs> Nina, can you just talk us through through the act? It obviously, um, you know, sort of comes into into force next year, two years on from from when when the act was was passed. What does what is that going to mean? practically for the industry and, and I guess are we ready? That's a really good question whether we're ready or not. Um, I was at a conference relatively recently and, and almost half the audience um, weren't even aware of this um, so slightly frightening. Um, it was an industry conference as well um, so you would have expected, uh, I, I would have hoped, 100% uh, awareness that this is coming down the road particularly as I think all of us will be repeating early engagement with this issue is, is really going to be critical to save headaches and um, adverse financial consequences that are avoidable down the line. Um, what effectively it will mean is, of course, we're waiting for the statutory, um, uh, the secondary legislation that will bring this statutory regime into to force. But what will happen, um, so we've been told so far, is there will be an automatic condition imposed on all planning permissions in England, it's, it's an England um, regime that's being brought in that will require, as Julia said, that um, uh, net gain objective, the biodiversity gain objective of at least 10%. Um, the 10% is set by the statute, the Environment Act 2021. Um, and that will be a pre-commencement condition, but it is certainly not advisable to wait to the commencement of development to address your mind to this, because of course, no one wants to um, get consent and then not be able to um, implement because of something that should have been thought about earlier. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what it will be, a pre-commencement condition on planning permissions in, in England. Um, and I should be very clear about what planning permission means. Um, that's granted under the Town and Country Planning Act, and it includes full and outline permissions, as um, we'd expect, but also developers um, and landowners looking to get permission for sites need to be aware that uh, applications to amend conditions under Section 73 of the Town and Country Plan Act and even condition retrospective applications under Section 73A, so re a retrospective application to amend conditions, sorry, an application to retrospectively amend conditions is also caught by the regime if the post-development value of that change of the condition um, changes the biodiversity um, value of the site. So really, really uh, wide-ranging regime to become brought into force here. So there's a huge amount to get get our heads around yeah. around around there. And you know, as as a journalist, I of course go first to the challenges because that's what we love. When the, what what's the stuff that will will make this difficult? Um, we've already heard a little bit about space, perhaps being one of those challenges. Emma, I wonder if you could talk us through. Um, that is the challenge and if there's any other challenges that the industry needs to get its head around so that we can deliver on this. Sure I mean I think one of the you know I'm an ecologist so um, I come from that background and I think one of the challenges is that um, the, the ecology sector and the sort of ecological assessments associated with development schemes have been quite focused on protected species and habitats haven't really take, been at the forefront of those assessments and <clears throat> 
certainly from the developer's perspective, it might be quite a shock to be thinking about, well, you know, I've got some scrub on my land and, and it, it, it seems kind of low value to me. Why, why do I need to think about that now? Um, so I think there's certainly an adjustment from, from a kind of developer's perspective, but also the skill sets of those consultancy teams that you're going to be working with. I'm sure they're all upskilling now um, very much, but um, it's looking at um, habitats in a different way. We need more botanists in this sector, um, but also the skill sets of the local authorities and the planning teams that you're going to be working with. They're, we're all upskilling at the same time to get our heads around this new new regime and the new sort of associated regulations and regulatory framework associated with that. Um, so that's I think that is a challenge and how how to sort of design schemes to to best maximize opportunities for delivering biodiversity net gain on site, but also consider consideration of the whole range of options that BNG can be delivered in different ways. Um, and to, for developers to sort of think outside the box, it's sort of, I think there's a nervousness to think beyond the red line sometimes, but there are going to be some solutions that that make sense that sit outside of the site as well, which I'm sure we'll, we'll sort of come on to soon. Excellent thing. I'm always fascinated, and it's for a different webinar, I'm sure, by, by the, the, the new skills gap there is in, in the built environment for some really fascinating um, career opportunities for people. That's a whole different um, uh, discussion there. Alexis, for you, what are the, the challenges that that you believe the industry faces and 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 maybe touch on some of the some of the solutions there as well? Um, thanks, um, Samantha. The, I think I, I've got a background in, in UK house building and I think um, as a land and planning board, the two things you really seek are, are as much certainty on timescale and, and the horizon at which point you obtain planning um, and secondly how much it's going to cost and I think the, the the benefit of a statutory regime is it brings clarity to, to the space it stops it being every local authority acting independently doing things differently there will still be a local element to this of course um, but actually it, it means we're all talking a common language and I think therefore, like, like Emma said, that the challenge is early engagement with this. That is going to be the most repeated theme of this. It's understanding from the initial master planning stage what is going to be the best method of delivery. And I think, you know, there, there are a number of solutions here that it has to be looked at through a viability lens um, commercially, um, whether that's a cost line for looking to purchase units offsite. Um, from from the providers of habitat solutions is one and, and there's a lot that needs to be considered there in terms of what liability might be being carried forward and so on um, to whether you give up more land on your own development site whether you feel you can accommodate that whether there's the space to do it without preventing uh, best use of land um, for development you know we've, we've got to balance this with an, an acute housing need in this country we've got a lot of infrastructure requirements uh, we need to build schools and so on we need we and, and we have a local plan making process that puts land in the best places for development so we need to to really uh, optimize the use of that land and similarly we need to put nature in the place where nature needs to be in the in the right locations and, and emma and julia can really talk about that making sure that nature isn't fragmented and, and delivered in small scale places where it doesn't get effectively monitored so i think for me the the solution is one where there 
whether it's on-site or off-site, it's early engagement, financially understanding the difference between on-site and off-site delivery, um, and, and factoring that in through every stage of the process from master planning through to technical delivery, and then long-term management costs at the other end post-completion. Thanks, Alexis. Uh, Julia, I wonder if you can can build build on that any 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 more around the this the space issue, the early engagement and the, those solutions that we might might have out there. Yes, I mean I work with clients who have an awful lot of things on their plate, and I'm just one of them, you know. And now I'm biodiversity net gain as well as great crested newts and bats and dormice and all those kind of things. And I really appreciate clients are just being bombarded at the moment by all sort, you know, there's carbon net zero, there's you know so many different things to aspect. And I think one of the key things is if you get all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle on the table, you can a work out where the clashes are, but also where what measure will achieve so many different things so we work very closely with the landscape architects you know they're the ones designing habitats they might need some screening or they might need a bit of an amenity area and if we can get in some little tweaks you know so in your amenity area well maybe that corner can be for wildlife or put a hedgerow on the boundary and then you're creating connectivity you know when when you're working with like-minded people you find those joint solutions but you can't retrofit this back in without costs and without missing those opportunities. So the best thing to do is um, to team up with the ecologist, particularly with the landscape architect, with the engineer, with the um, architect, you know, whatever those are, and say, right, you know, what's all the things that we've got to deliver? Landscape, you know, everything else and biodiversity net gain. Um, and where's the opportunities going to be? And I think it's, um, the, the ones that I've seen work really, really well is not just the early engagement with a, an ecologist and the client, it's early engagement among those key professionals. You know, so you really work together and you really, really look at that. And the great thing is with the biodiversity metric that I mentioned, it allows you to run the metric. You know, you can run the metric pretty early on. You just need desk days by the um, desk study data you don't need you know site data really early on and it gives you a good direction of travel so I work with clients at the master planning stage and say look we're thinking about these different options you know for a school or for a housing development run the metric and say well look this one you'll be in deficit this one you're nearly there actually so the metric is a fantastic planning tool what happens is that it, it kind of gets a bit labeled as something that the ecologist does and we don't use it as a communication tool to inform decisions so not just early engagement bringing the right professionals together and use the metric and use the metric because it's it's not perfect but it's useful to really inform those decisions Thank you, Emma. You were nodding along quite uh, vigorously <laughs> there. You clearly agree yes. with everything. Well, yeah, I I also love the metric. I'm a big fan, and I know, like Julia says, it's got its it's got its challenges, and it's not perfect. But crikey, it's transformed the way we're able to, in a really tangible way, measure biodiversity value, which before the metric it was very much sort of professional judgment based and of course we've always been a, uh, understood how to assess habitats but to to make it, it create this level playing field for all of the stakeholders so that we you know okay I know that the, there are some challenges with it and some people find it difficult to get their heads around the fact that we're we're bringing it down to a number of you know a score if you like but 
but that is transformative because it it does mean that we can actually measure measure things and and do those calculations those those pro you know the costs and benefits and yeah so that's I I just agreed everything that Julia said there it's such a great tool yeah <laughs> but that but that's it because um just to back up what Emma's saying you know as ecologists we tend not to be the best um because we we do get quite technical and we you know we just kind of assume that people know what we're talking about with the metric it's it's numbers and it's you've got to be careful and there ha- absolutely has to be a, an integrity behind the net gain design you know make sure that we're doing those biodiversity ambitions but to help clients to help decision makers know what are the implications of different designs on the biodiversity net gain and to make those informed decisions it's invaluable to use the metric early as a communication tool and i suppose that's helping with the clarity which um everyone in in real estate wants and needs don't they if they're to make a decision and and nina i wonder if you can jump in on this and i I want to know how much the the act is going to help with that clarity because I I assume and un- understand that if if as developers that we're talking to lots of different local authorities they all have different um things in their local plan that at the moment the requirements from um the local authorities might be different all over the place does the act create a benchmark that brings that clarity helps people really understand um, how to do their due diligence on a on a site as they're as they're looking for it. Yeah, and just to echo, um, I think the the universal consensus here, the metric is so welcome because all of us working in this sector have experienced wildly different judgments being applied to the exact same uh, concepts in ecology. It is um, so welcome to have this, um, as you said, Sam, a, a benchmark in the metric. I cannot say the same thing about the 10%, the, the biodiversity gain objective, because that's a floor, not a ceiling. And we are seeing local um, planning authorities adopt higher percentages already. Um, and, and that's absolutely permitted. Um, there's absolutely nothing in the statute that precludes a higher biodiversity gain objective being applied locally. So the 10% is a minimum um, that will be imposed by the soon to be enforced schedule, relatively soon to be enforced schedule 7A of the, the Town and Country Planning Act, but it by no means sets um, a universal standard across the country. Um, I think the best that can be said would be the metric provides that that universal standard, but the 10% is just a seat uh, floor. And so that's why this early engagement is is so, so necessary. Oh, yes. Yes, you don't want to get to the end of planning your on-site biodiversity gain and find you need to provide twice as much um, so absolutely right, Sam. Fantastic, thank you. And uh, Alexis, I wonder if you could um, sort of help us a little bit more understand, I suppose, for our audience, you know, where does this start? Who does it start with, and who should, where should the the the, where should the responsibility lie? Who needs to make sure that um, there's understanding of what is required, and that the the whole of the the team understands and can deliver. Um, it's it's definitely I, I love Julia's point about the wider design team understanding the impacts of this. It's it's a shared responsibility at design stage, but ultimately, um, what what the act does is it it gives real teeth now to enforcement if this isn't adopted in the right way. If habitat fails 10, 15 years downstream, that liability is going to sit with the section 106 holder and so on. It, it's a high bar to planning entry. It will increasingly become the case that if you haven't thought about this as part of your planning application, um, you know, the, 
that there may be a refusal or it's going to cause a, a severe delay to, to the application process. So there's there's a real incentive for this to be addressed at the very sort of top boardroom level with every developer, really. That's where the developer needs to sit. And it's that management of the design team to ensure a BNG strategy has been incorporated at the earliest stage costed. Because because I say, if it is, it doesn't need to become a problem. And it's and it can it can really support sustainable development in the right way. If it's ignored, it's going to create a financial consequence. And, you know, if I was a a land archer in my previous roles who who got to the point of planning permission without having recognised this. Um, I know what questions I'd be being asked and, and, and it wouldn't be a, a fun day in the office. So, so it's just vital that it's those who are leading this process are also taking responsibility for it. How do we ensure that enough people know and understand? I was really concerned by uh, Nina's tale of um, people, you know, people in our industry not knowing that this this was a, a requirement that was around the corner. What do we need to do to amplify the the need and the benefit of creating um, better habitats, and that that actually is a value add to development, not a not a viability option? Um, it's a great question. I think I think more front page spreads on on the front of the EG is is the obvious place <laughs> to go with this, isn't it? Um, the the um, it, it's. It's, it's fascinating. A lot of the contact we have naturally is with the ecological community. And coming from that development background, you would rest very much on the advice you were given in, in constructing a design plan. And I, so I think it has to start there. It has to start from the people who are providing the advice, you know, and making sure that this is really reinforced with clients, the importance of this, but also talking through those practical solutions, whether it be on-site, off-site delivery, understanding the mitigation hierarchy, understanding the, the legislative points that will affect this, how to create a biodiversity game plan, how a gain site register will operate. So I think there's a, there's a shared responsibility there. I think we need um, a lot more of this kind of thing going on through CPD and, and, and so on. And that, that is happening. What we've found with a lot of clients we've spoken about is um, you found that there's been a sort of initial CPD session that happened earlier on this year following the statute, and now people are beginning to sort of apply potential how they how they're going to address it. But it's it's still like Nina said, 50%. That that's terrifying when this is only a year away. Um, the other side, and I think that's really vital, is the small site sector, and because I think where BNG can have real impacts is those smaller development sites. You know. Big strategic sites, you can sometimes find the space around the edges. There's places to enhance nature in the way Julia spoke about. Very small sites, it becomes quite, can become really challenging. And I think through the planning portal, this needs to be something and, and, other, and other venues like this, this just needs to be spoken about much more. And spoken about in, in the light of this is something that's beneficial for sustainability. It's, it's about valuing natural capital as part of the cycle in the right way. Um, and just trying to get the message out to as many people as we can. Just to, um, just to add to that, I think, that, so in April uh, earlier this year, um, there was a government consultation on biodiversity net gain and the sort of emerging se secondary legislation and what the regulatory framework is going to look like. And uh, we're expecting um, sort of further clarity, certainly, hopefully by the end of this year, but certainly in early 2023. And uh, um and I think that's desperately needed at the moment. Like, what does a game plan look like? Um, what's the regis 
register going to look like? And so there's so many questions around how biodiversity net gain is going to be implemented in the sector um, from in terms of the regulatory framework. So I, I'm hopeful that once that is coming through, and I know DEFRA and Natural England are working incredibly hard on this stuff, that there will be um, that clarity will also bring sort of knowledge and knowledge sharing opportunities again. So I think I, I would like to see, you know, once that does come through, that, that that will be an opportunity for everyone to, again, get learn further and, and get clarity, the clarity they need. And, and just, yeah, just to follow that, and, and absolutely right, we're kind of waiting for this. But at the moment, mm. we have several local planning authorities already requiring for this. And as, as mentioned, there's so much variation between local planning authorities. And we've got a, you know, we got until late next year until the mandatory requirement comes in. So one really practical, useful tip is make sure you get from your local planning authority ex exact clarity on what they require for biodiversity net gain. So in this kind of waiting period, you know, until we get the mandatory stuff, until the mandatory stuff is actually enacted, there is variation. So up front, just check. You've got to check is it 10% is it 20% what do local planning authorities want submitted as part of planning what's going to be a pre-planning uh, pre-commencement condition you know and we can all do that and I think a lot of that is down to the ecologist we should be advocating for that clarity um, but most of the time ecologist is brought in quite late so you know even for our planning colleagues to get that information is pretty key. What happens if people aren't doing their homework right now they're not prepared for this when it comes in and they fail to deliver what are the what are the risks of of getting getting the ng wrong nina um well uh, they'll be subject to a big surprise when it does come in and, and they've got to <laughs> scramble to find 10 percent um uh, that that's the number one issue um, this is going to be an automatic condition there will be no option for the local planning authority not to put this condition on on that planning permission so the industry really really does need to be thinking about this now um, and really it, it, they need to be engaging with this now just as everyone was saying um, get your ecologist on board at the at the outset um, that needs to happen now. It needs to be routine that where just as you're carrying out a utility search, looking for a show-stopping gas main for your future layout, that sort of thing, you need to start thinking, my ecologist, my on-site semi-calcerous um, natural green grassland, that's as show-stopping potentially as, as a, a gas main, because if you can retain that on-site, then you get that bonus in the BNG metric down the line and will save you an awful lot in terms of costs and um, uh, design um, headache if you at the outset design your scheme with this BNG in mind and it might well be that that site's not something um, you should acquire because of the potential downfall with BNG at the end of the line so really something that the industry right now at the outset needs to be aware of um, because you there isn't going to be an option those conditions are coming um, on planning permissions whether they want them or not um, and when you're looking at large sites with EIA <clears throat> it, the BNG um, is measured at the application stage, but sites where you're being, that are being worked up now are going to be caught by this regime where, especially the EIA sites, the larger ones that require a long lead-in period, um, because you're looking at an application a year or two down the line when we will have this regime in force. So um, just it, uh, 
to echo the chorus yet again, um, early engagement with this is absolutely key. Yeah, I, I, and I just add to that, I think the, the other risk of getting this wrong comes much further downstream, um, particularly with, with offsite um, requirements where 15, 20 years time, the way that the units are generated is on the basis they're delivered over a 30 year period to meet the, the terms of the act and reach a, a target condition level as well of habitat. If there is failure to meet that target condition level, the units effectively haven't been generated. And, and through the, the monitoring regime and enforcement through Section 106 or, or conservation covenants with responsible bodies, what's envisioned is someone has teeth now to come and say, where are those units? And so in 15 years time, you could suddenly be required to deliver this value that was promised to be created and hasn't. So it's it's how this is addressed has got to be seen as, as it's about addressing long-term liability. So it's really important people think about that in the contracts they're entering to manage this thing, whether it be on-site through management companies and so on, or the purchase of units from other providers is ensuring that that liability is effectively mitigated as, as well as it can be. And Sam, I'm probably preempting your next question, which is, um, if you at the end of the pipeline get this wrong, what happens? Um, enforcement is uh, in the legal community one thing that we are really worried about um, because it can come by a variety of ways. So there's the local planning authority. They are in in governance terms envisaged as the main enforcing body now um, because they will be enforcing that condition. Um, and uh, we all know that local planning authorities are a resource stretch, so um, hopefully they will um, have the resources and the expertise to deal with this. But that's um, number one concern. But then, so breach of condition for, for failing to comply with the, the game plan. But then, as Alexis has alluded to, there are these other options, especially for offsite, where they will need these um, formal legal agreements um, to secure that offsite habitat. Enforcement could also come. Um, through those legal agreements, that um, whether it's a Section 106 offsite um, planning obligation or um, uh, probably more likely a conservation covenant, um, those are all um, separate to the, the condition and, and separately enforceable. So there's a range of enforcement mechanisms um, that can come down the line, but they will all be subject to the, the strong arm of the law um, ultimately. So absolutely right, Alexis. You're looking at a 30-year at least time period um, and you don't want to be on the hook for that. Um, uh, so it's key to ensure that the person in charge of that habitat knows exactly what they're doing for that 30 year period to maintain um, those habitat gains that you promised at the outset. No one wants to be that first developer to be um, held up in the high court with uh, someone saying you have failed yeah. to deliver here on such <laughs> a, a vital thing for our for our planet and our our people and and uh, and I want to touch on that actually because we've talked about sort of the the legal obligation uh, of, of this coming down down the line and what we need to think about there but uh, you know we've all just been through two years of craziness and and learning more about actually what really makes people tick what makes us feel um, healthy um, mentally and, and physically and I wonder is there a conversation that needs to ha be had around habitats in the value that that brings to to place you know the real estate industry is creating places it's not just building buildings how, how important is it is this for for that conversation emma 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point. I think imagine if if biodiversity, if the Environment Act hadn't come into play and biodiversity net gain wasn't a thing, surely we'd still be seeking to create great green space within our new development schemes. Um, because of this this need for great placemaking and people to improve access to nature, as you say, like over the last few years, it's really come come to the fore that that's what people want in their in high quality development schemes. And obviously, I'm just talking about residential, but even more commercial schemes having having green space. Um, designed into those developments and I guess biodiversity net gain is an opportunity really to not just provide biodiversity for biodiversity's sake but a whole range of other you know natural capital benefits and ecosystem build ecosystem resilience both into our development schemes and the wider landscape as well um yeah Fantastic. Julia anything to add on, on that the, the importance of this for people it definitely adds value. It really, really does. There's some really interesting research actually coming out of the Office of National Statistics showing, you know, just how much more local green space people want. You know, they don't want to drive. They don't want to, you know, mm. they would rather go somewhere locally, even if it, even if they had to get in their car and go to a much bigger area of green space. They would rather pop outside, go to somewhere local. Um, and, you know, that's definitely a driver, you know, for adding value to our developers, um, to our developments rather, and looking at that. But actually, it's already in local planning policy. If you dive into local planning policy, there's already talk about boosting well-being. We just need to join the dots. So we've got one aspect now, which is biodiversity net gain, already in local plans and local policy. There's a whole element under the planning framework about boosting well-being. We just need to join the dots. And, you know, we can get something really special. That's such an interesting point, isn't it, about joining the dots? Because I think about that even even wider with the um, sort of race to net zero. And we're seeing a lot of um, businesses create their own um, pathway to net zero. And and given the, the need for such early engagement on, on BNG as well, does there need to be a pathway to BNG? Should that be included in that net zero? pathway how do we how do we bring this all together so that our new developments are sustainable in the fullest sense of of the word alexis i'm going to um evilly throw that question at you that's that's okay i think i think there are there there are two approaches here i think um one is on the the delivery side from a from a business perspective um We've seen a lot of, you know, some of the volume developers, some of the ones I've worked for, uh, have got have had their own BNG policy for some time, and and that's that's fantastic to see. Um, I think this is something that will naturally become part of the design process, as it, it won't take too many times of people being stopped at the gates, as it were, of of planning for it to quickly evolve as part of just something you do uh, in your early design. Um, sort of uh, constraints planning as it were so i think there's a it, it is important though to adopt this as part of a you know a strategic principle within within any development business how are we going to address bng for then there's the lpa side and and one of the questions we often get asked is you know should should there be spaces for houses and this is the the nature space now we're seeing this is more where, where julia and emerald can add a bit more weight but it's you know i I think we need to be, 
it's important as part of the local plan process to understand where the houses go. I think we need to be careful of being overly prescriptive uh, on specific uh, nature principles. Absolutely, we need to uh, adhere to uh, local nature recovery networks and so on. These these are great things, but 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 there are. This is the purpose of the metric. It's designed to promote delivery in the places of the right strategic significance. Um, I think this needs to stay out of a, a sort of local plan uh, making process because I think that adds a, a layer of politics that shouldn't be there uh, to this. That's the whole idea of of the Environment Act itself. Um, Emma, Julie, I don't know if you'd agree agree with that point on the, on the, uh, on the local plan making scale, but it, for me, it's about lo local planning authorities understanding what's what's required to deliver it, and having respect to the statutory regime, and, and developers having a, a strategic uh, process as well that's embedded in their in their business plan. Julia, Emma, you agree? Well, just to uh, yeah, just to add to that, I th I think it's. It's more of an integrated approach. And Alexis, you're absolutely right. We're kind of in danger of saying, OK, people over here, all uh, great crusty nukes, you're over in that yeah. bit. You know, it just doesn't work like that. Essentially, it's about really good design that works commercially, you know, according to what the developers want. Um, and there's always going to be a space for nature, no matter the busiest place, you know, heart of London, there will be a space for nature. But it's about carefully knowing uh, what's going to be appropriate? Where's the green space there? And then, yes, there absolutely will be more priority areas for nature, which are going to be less uh, used by people. Absolutely. Um, but it's it's early and good design. And it comes back to Julia's one of your first points, Julia, around bringing all of the experts together. It's not working an ecologist working in a silo thinking about where the great crested newts will be happiest. It's working with the landscape architects and the hydrologists and the and and the yeah the master planners and the people thinking about recreation and the you know all all of that stuff. Um, if they all work collaboratively, then you're going to get a much more sustainable design, and it and, and it's all about that integration of skill sets. I'm going to come to you all very shortly with a final question, which will be um, uh, based around. We've gone through so much in in a short um, period of time, and I'm sure that um, the audience is a bit um, thinking, "What? Okay, where do I where do I start?" So I'm going to ask you all at the end of this conversation to just give one clear, like if you're going to take one thing away from this conversation, make sure you write this down now and, and do it. So we're going to get to that in a minute. But before that, I'd love to know, and Nina, maybe you can kick us off on this. What's the, what's the attitude um, towards um, BNG, the, the Environment Act as a, a whole from the development community? Are they, are they up for the challenge? I, I'm very happy to say um, uh, there will be, um, and those that I've spoken to are aware of it are already um, really gung-ho. I know there are some um, firms that are actually aiming internally to have a policy of delivering more than 10% um, off their own bat, and that's really, really encouraging. Um, and it will lead to all these wider benefits of, of placemaking that, that you mentioned earlier, Sam. And, frankly, places that people will potentially pay a premium to live in. Um, can't forget that bottom line as well. So uh, and everybody benefits, um, particularly the mortgage companies. So the development industry, they they are enthusiastic about this because they can see the long-term benefits 
um, to their schemes and to the future residents of their schemes. So um, it, it's um, it's being received um, with uh, cautious enthusiasm um, and concerns about viability are there in the background. Um, people are aware it will add a cost, um, but on average, um, the industry surveys are coming back. People will think, most people think it'll be about one to 10% um, uh, of the value um, of a development that, that might be caught by increase in BNG requirements. But it remains to be seen, every site's different. So that's um, not something you can put um, with any precision. Cautious optimism. So cautious enthusiasm. Sam. Cautious enthusiasm. I like it. I like it. I'm not sure how much I want to help the mortgage companies right now. They're doing <laughs> all right on their on their own, but I, I like um, cautious enthusiasm. So let, let's turn to that that final question as as we um, wrap up this really fascinating session that I know could probably go on for days because there's so much to to talk about. If there is one thing that everyone who's who's tuned into this needs to take away from this, what should it be? Alexis, and starting with you. Oh, it's, it's great to be first on a question like this. I, I, I think there's going to be a very shared vibe here. Um, <laughs> it, it's early engagement, which is conceptually such a, a big thing. So let, let, let me break that down to early engagement with your uh, consultant team specifically, I think is how are we going to address this on a site specific basis? Uh, let's learn about it. So early engagement is, is is the snapshot that I suspect a lot of us will want to use, but there's mine. Fantastic, thank you. So as soon as you finish watching this, get on the blower and uh, <laughs> engage. Absolutely. Uh, Emma. Great. So I I knew someone would take that first. So I've gone I've gone off off wall here and just to consider all your options. So I think your the best solution for any scheme might be a mix, a combination of different delivery methods. So um, be open-minded and consider all your options. That's That could be the best outcome for you. Fantastic. And who am I going to be mean to? I'm going to be mean to Julia and go to Nina next. <laughs> Sorry, that was me next then. Yeah. Uh, I think being mean is the last one because everyone takes the, the points first. Uh, we would have all said the exact same thing, Alexis. So much like Emma, I've thought of something else. Um, and it is uh, take it very seriously now um, because we are looking at long-term timeframes of delivering something that is actually very, very difficult to deliver on the ground. Uh, nature is unpredictable and doesn't do often what you hope it will do. Um, and there is legal liability throughout that 30-year period. So take it absolutely very seriously now um, and in the long term when you're setting up these governance arrangements for your sites. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Julia, I apologise. No, no, I'm delighted because my one, no one's mentioned it. So it's absolutely good. <laughs> use the metric. So ask your ecologist to use the biodiversity metric as early as possible. They don't, you know, they can run early estimates on different development design options and ask to see the metric, ask to use the metric early and to inform your design. Fantastic. Four really great takeaways there early engagement be open-minded i love that consider all of your options there are many out there take it seriously and take it really seriously now because this is this is happening and and use that that metric if there's a tool um we love it we love a tool in this sector don't we and if we can if we can measure it we can make it 
make it better. This has been a really fascinating um, and really educational, uh, particularly for me, um, session. So thank you very much for, for joining us on this EG webinar. Emma, Nina, Julia and Alexis.